Hi, this is Edwin Crozier of the Franklin Church of Christ in Franklin, Tennessee. I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. The lesson you're about to hear is the first in a series of lessons presented to the Franklin Church in January of 2009 by Harold Comer. Frederick Comer agreed to work with us as we strive to make 2009 our biggest year of growth ever. In this lesson, he provides the scriptural background and authority for the approach he's taking and then leads a discussion about how changes in our world over the past century have affected the way we spread the gospel today. Open your Bible and get ready to talk about church growth. Certainly, it's a joy for me to be with you. I appreciate so much the association I've had with the congregation back to Chestnut Lane days or even prior to that. And I appreciate so much the opportunities you have and the, the importance of the topic we're talking about. I think that it is certainly needed today, and I think that it is one of the more rewarding kinds of things that we can be addressing. When we meet one soul that we've saved at the Day of Judgment, when we realize what took place in that one soul being blessed forever and evermore, there is a joy to look forward to. There's a joy to anticipate. Sometimes when we start talking about evangelism, all we feel is pain. We think about the rejection. We think about the people that don't respond. And in doing that, we miss some of the great drives and some of the great emotions that God intends for us. The object of this is not for you to feel something now or to feel something in eternity. But when we deal with important things, then important feelings go with all those. They're just a side thing, a consequence. But we are here to deal with things that are terribly, terribly important. Things that we can consider nice and good, uh, and it would be great if it worked, we accomplished something, but still uh, something's a little too hard, something that doesn't work, we are worried about it, troubled about it, and if we can replace those viewpoints, those attitudes, with some biblical ones, there are a lot of great benefits that are there. Now, in the Bible class hour, I'm going to be talking about why we need to be looking at these things and specific uh, pictures, little glimpses of things that we need to be seeing and understanding. I'm going to talk about the biblical base of all that we're doing uh, and why we need to pay attention to those. I do appreciate so much the fact that you had me back and that I'm that I get the chance to study you and learn from you. Every church I work with, there's some benefit that helps other churches elsewhere. And so I surely appreciate you for being involved in your work. Your questions are welcome. This will be a Bible class. It will probably be a little bit harder but to get my attention. But if you get my attention, uh, hold your hand up, stand up, or whatever. I'll be glad 
to look at any of the points we're considering in a biblical way, in a much more extensive way than maybe I'm addressing right at that point. If you'll get your Bible, I'd like to give you just one passage that gives a, a great picture in one spot and give brief authority for what I'm doing. If you come in and talk about things like uh, how you do things, uh, buildings, how you arrange Bible classes or worship, or uh, uh, how, how do you organize your teaching activities toward the lost, you need to be sure that you're not crossing a line somewhere and that you're doing exactly what God wants you to do. So, Colossians 4, where Paul is in prison in Rome and expects to, to get out, uh, hopefully, and I think that he did for a short while, concludes, uh, has a, a lot of important things that uh, we can certainly benefit from in our evangelism today. Beginning verse 2. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving, with all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, Redeeming the time, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Now, in that picture, there are a number of elements about what you're to pay attention to in evangelism. Paul's evangelism has been greatly changed because he's in prison now. He is in prison, I believe, at the providence of God, and it is not what he would have planned, but it is what, by the time the Philippians is written, he's come to understand that it was good for him, and it was beneficial, and uh, he has come to terms with the fact that he can't do what he once did, and how much he loved starting churches in Gentile areas. He understands that there are some things that he is doing now, like this letter, where he is training, where he's stimulating, where he is encouraging, and that he has uh, a slightly different role. One of the things that is important here is the role of wisdom. And that particularly is the key word that I want to focus on as far as a lot of the things we're going to talk about. It's interesting that wisdom and evangelism are regularly associated together, and even back into the Old Testament. Colossians 4 and verse 5, walk in wisdom toward them that are without. Now that's a commandment. It's not a suggestion. It's not, it would be nice if you did. It's commandment. And therefore, we have to be very, very serious about wisdom. What is it? How do you do it? What all is involved in it? Uh, the, the whole topic, because of this commandment, becomes very, very serious. Walk in wisdom 
toward those who are outside. That's the New King James. I had read King James earlier. Wisdom is associated in Ephesians with soul saving. Ephesians, the fifth chapter, verses 15, and, uh, verses 15, 16, and 17. See then that you walk circumspectly, that is, uh, with the circle around you. I think this is parallel with the Colossians passage, and it's talking about those that are outside. Now, circumspectly is a broader term, and it could have other meaning or application, and that's not as clear uh, a point as it, it is in the Colossians. But you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time. That's the same. That shows this pretty well as a parallel verse with Colossians. Redeeming the time, getting on the ball, making use of the time, understanding that the clock is moving and our opportunities are passing with each hour that's passing away, redeeming the time. Because the days are evil, that just simply means the world is filled with sin and that people are sinful and that there are some sinful people who can be reached. Therefore, do not be unwise but understand what the will of the Lord is. The will of the Lord is to save you, to save anyone else that will respond. And understanding that, I have to understand my role in reaching out to others. And you say, well, I'd like to do something, but... And then we start with the buts. Can't do this. Uh, they don't care, or, or a lot of different things. And a lot of those are true. But there are a lot of those things that are just basically excuses. They're there. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, when the picture is made of evangelism, that there is that same tie between be wise about it, find wisdom, and the evangelism. This passage in the Messianic sections of, of Daniel, at the end of Daniel, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That's a Jewish couplet, and in a couplet there are two parts, and then a repeat, the first part of those couplets are going to be the same. So those who are wise are those who turn many to righteousness. Now, in the positive aspect of our feelings toward evangelism, it says that there will come a time that you'll be glad for everything you did. Shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, like the stars forever and ever. There, there will be a day at the day of judgment when the effort that you put in to doing more, learning more, and doing better will be a, a bright and shining part of your life. That it will be one of the joys of all that you've done. So, this pictures the importance of wisdom, then, in what we do. When we look at the biblical teaching about wisdom, it's very important that we understand the, the commandments that relate to that and the commandments that, that are part of that. There are four important lessons that are there. 
in the Scriptures from James 1 first and then from the book of Proverbs where a father is teaching a teenager about wisdom. Uh, James 1, 5 and 6, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. That commandment to pray to be wiser, to pray for wisdom, that if I know I've not made the best judgment, I can still pray and pray hard to make me wise. If you're an older lady and you say, oh, there are a lot of things I can't do, you can still pray for wisdom. And you can still pray for souls. And it's amazing what a little gray-haired lady can do when she says something about our spiritual heritage to a young family down the street from her. It's amazing the impact. And she understands how great your Bible classes are and what's going on and can describe that in a gentle, clear kind of term. How much the kids can learn. There's great power that's there. You say, well, I don't know how to do that. Well, first thing, start is pray for wisdom. And then start doing some of the other things that are with that. God gives without reproach. He will answer. If you will show him, you listen to his word and that you care. Now then, if you want to understand wisdom, you need to understand Proverbs the uh, first through the ninth chapters. Great information there because this is a father talking to his teenage son. This is what every teenager ought to cover once a year. It's, it's great material. It's just right on the nose with teenagers today. And it is a, a repeat lesson. The most, there are three really important lessons in Proverbs 1 through 9. The most important one is repeated twice in every chapter and it is the word, listen. Open up your ears, listen. And it seems too simple. But I'll tell you, it's the start of all the information to your teenage years. If you learn all the right things, accumulate all those, you will listen. And so if you just take Proverbs 139 and start through it, it'll it will say again and again, twice in every chapter. And I give that to even uh, junior high kids. And I say, uh, tell me, uh, the, uh, if this passage, if this chapter says anything about listen, they all get it. They all get it immediately. It's, it's that important to say it again and again. Here's how he says it in chapter 1. Wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in open squares. She cries out in the chief concourses. At the openings of the gates in the city, she speaks her word. Now notice that wisdom is called a woman here. And she is contrasted with the woman foolishness. And there, the foolish woman is described two or three times. But Wisdom is a woman. 
but she speaks loudly. She speaks everywhere. And if a teenager starts listening, there are just all sorts of sources of information that flow to it. How should you drive as a teenager? How, what should you do about drugs? What should you do about alcohol? What should you do about your attitudes toward your family? What should you do about helping others around you and taking some love toward them and responsibility toward them? The, the information flows. The key thing is just opening up your ears and hearing it and listen. And so this same lesson, though, applies to an old preacher who thinks he's quit learning about wisdom. That you need, I need, to be praying for wisdom. We need to be opening up our ears. And that's a lot what this the, the conversation or some of the things I'm going to ask will be about. So uh, this is repeated just again and again. This is just a, a, a symptom of that. A couple of other points are important about wisdom, though. On over in Proverbs, the eighth chapter, uh, the father is giving the son this information. He's, he has wisdom speaking to his uh, son. She says, I love those who love me. So you have to love wisdom. You, you have to want to know. I love those who love me. And those who seek me diligently will find me. You go back in the context there. It's the context of wisdom, uh, the woman speaking. And she says that if you will seek her, that you will find her. So those simple lessons, pray for wisdom, listen to her, love her, and seek her, apply to all of us when we say, well, let's do what we did in the 1950s, let's have a two-week gospel meeting. Well, if that works, like, I see some churches try that every now and then, but they don't only try it one time because it's a different world from 1950. And I appreciate anybody that will try anything, but it's a little easier if you say, what's going on? Why is it going on? What's working? And you apply some of the elements of wisdom to the work that you put in. Because the churches that did that had a, a two-week gospel meeting now, wore out their members, because their members are living a different pattern uh, now than they were in 1950. They're not sitting on the front porch every night with not much to do in a little southern town somewhere. They're not, not out in the country where my grandfather was when the crops were laid by and you had the meeting in the summer. It's awful hot. You work those fans really well, and you could feel the sweat run down your spinal column. Your shirt stick to the, the view. But it was, a, it was a joy, and there was a lot of great things, and it was joy to see the baptisms at the end. But it's a different world today, and that's an important thing that we need to understand. And we need to understand what's changed. Why are there some differences? Let me uh, 
just take your comments a little bit because it's important for you to think about it. What has changed in your world? My, both of my grandfathers were in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee, 75 years ago. They were out in the country, out toward Midway. And they were both members of the church. And there were a lot of things in 1934, 35, that, uh, 36 that were, were going on that made it, the times a little tough. Farm prices were way down. There were a lot of other things going on. But it was essentially the same world and the same pattern of life, for my grandfathers at least, that had been there in the 20s and had been there in the teens and been there near the start of the century. What's changed in our world? Technology is one thing. Technology has to do with how we shift information, that it's a lot quicker and a lot more information. Uh, there are some consequences to that that you, you need to understand, and they're affecting you. When you come in here and how I teach, you're overloaded with information all week. And you have some instincts that you bring in here that mean that I have to teach differently than I did in 1960. Because you're so covered over with information that you're trained to sort it. You're trained to throw it away. And it's a much deeper response than you realize. And when you're throwing it away, then if I start too slowly, or if I don't hit a need that's there, then what's going to happen is in ten minutes you're gone. And that's not because you're something bad or you're not spiritual or anything. It's because you've been trained to that kind of pattern by commercials, by TV programs, by uh, uh, everything that's going on. Technology contributed a little bit. The amount of information, prosperity, contributed to that also. But it, it, it is important. It is a thing you've got to know. And it's the thing you've got to know when you start teaching somebody. I don't, I used to have, have two or three lessons before I got into something very, very much. Uh, and it just sort of built up. And now, in, there was a period a few years back that I was losing all my, uh, studies on about the second, third, fourth, uh, lesson. And it, it before, I mean, I had ten lessons. Long lessons. And I could get it, and they would agree to ten. Then it got to where they couldn't imagine doing ten. Because their thinking pattern and their time patterns had changed. So, it becomes very, very serious that you understand what's going on in yourself, and that it's not because those people are so sinful they can't even take two hours. It's because of their the development of their their mental faculties and how it's come in and what what's going on in our world. You can still teach great, but then you better move and you better show need and a lot of other things that, that come into that. This is one sample that 
Each one of these points that you're going to introduce has a real effect. So what's different? Technology is different. What else is different? All right. The 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 uh, things of child rearing, of in, internal teaching, and what they know, and how it goes, and authority and obedience. That family matters affect quite a bit. Give me some others. Transportation is really important. It's affecting us a lot more than we know. Uh, it affects the church. In fact, you do not think about the congregation and your potential in the same ways today that you would have back then. And uh, 75 years ago, if you were more than four or five miles away, you were, you were out of the range of a prospect. Uh, you were thought neighborhood because people walked or if they, you, you had a load of people coming in the back of a pickup, they, they didn't come all that far. It, you, in 75 years ago, there were still a lot of horses and wagons that were, were coming in. Uh, there were more cars by far by that point. But transportation says that you've got to understand drive time rules. Drive time rules say how far will you drive? Who are your prospects? You need to know church drive time rules. 20 minutes is neighborhood. Now, if you take this building and you draw a 20-minute drive time circle, it will not be a smooth circle. It'll be along a good thoroughfare. It'll go out farther. If you've got a higher speed limit and a freeway or something like that, but you draw a 20-minute drive time circle around this building, that's neighborhood. You do not worry at all about talking to anybody in that circle uh, because they would come here just as much as they would anywhere else. How many, how far will people drive for uh, a hamburger? You know, and you get tired of the two or three fast food joints here and you go over there 15 minutes. So, when a church trains everybody in the group to know our drive time circle, after the 20-minute drive time circle, you draw a 30-minute drive time circle. And that's somebody with good motivation. They're really hyped, and you've got a good connection. The 30-minute circle is pretty far out from here. And most churches have somebody that drives 45 minutes to get there. I, I haven't asked about y'all, but I ask that all over the place. And just consistently, there's somebody that's driving 45 minutes or longer. That is somebody that's uniquely like you, that's highly motivated and uh, makes the effort to come. Now, that's important if you're talking about somebody at work and they live the other way and you say, oh, they'll never come. Well, I'd still invite them if they were in that 45-minute drive time circle. 
It might be that they won't come uh, over the long term for years. But there was a point there about four years ago when almost all of our new converts were coming in the 38-minute the to 45-minute drive time circle. I mean, they were ranged out a long way. Now, if they found another church or something uh, that after they're converted and doing things, that, that may be a little different. But uh, we had the connection through different things. And you say, well, a new convert, they won't make that effort. New converts excited. And so understand your potential and don't reject somebody because they're a little farther out. Because we just drive farther today. And it increases your potential. And a lot of times we try to eliminate them and that would be unfortunate. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that brings us to the biggest thing that's going on in our lives and the one that has the greatest effect on the greatest number of instincts that we have, and that's urbanization. Urbanization is a powerful impact on someone. It, urbanization is basically the more and more people that you pack in a smaller and smaller place the less and less they have to do with each other. That is because there's so many that you can't interact with them. And so it makes you colder. It makes you more skeptical. It makes you pull back in. And what's happening, the reason we don't talk with everybody is because we don't know them. And we don't know what kind of reaction they're going to have. And we've got to learn a whole new style of talking. Now, with my granddad... Uh, he would be down at the country store and they would have a really strong argument about predestination or something, you know, doctrinal at a point. And, I mean, they would go throwing in verses of Scripture and talking about it, and then they'd get up and go build a barn together. In a rural area, there was a greater closeness. You were only around about 400 people. You know, and my granddad, he would have had to have gone to a really big funeral and then gone into Florence. Uh, this was a little later. He'd moved from Lawrenceburg down to North Alabama and gone into Florence to have even seen 400 people in a month. But his reactions, I mean, most of those 400 people, he knew all their relatives, and he knew where they were from and knew their story. Uh, and so 
that made a, a totally different kind of interpersonal reaction. It was more confrontational, but you could do that and, and not offend anybody. Uh, you can't do that today when you just barely meet somebody or barely know somebody. You've got to build something. And so what has to, has to happen today is how do you touch somebody you just briefly around? How do you give them something kind and spiritual and appealing that's spiritual and right? How can you say something that will stir them? How can you do something that invites them and, and gives them an appeal? Come in. Tomorrow night I'll be talking about, I call the sermon, I could say that, but I'll be talking about that kind of period of talk and of things you say. You have greater potential. One of the things that happens in an urbanization is you pack more people in, then you've got more choices. And that begins to change you. Uh, if you've got 50 choices of lawyers and 50 choices of doctors and 50 choices of, of churches, how do you make a decision? You cannot know every church. You don't know much about any of them, like you don't know uh, very much about any of the doctors. So you take recommendations. You take feedback from somebody that would be a specialist in that. If it was a nurse and she worked with 20 doctors in surgery, and you go and have surgery, man, I pay attention to the surgery nurse, what she says, because she's open-minded and fair. But what I'm saying is we get our information from a lot of ways. And a lot of church members don't understand that they are one of the few people that anybody around you knows that goes to church on Wednesday night. Going to church on Wednesday night makes you the religious specialist in their circle. And we don't think about that. I don't, you don't want to get proud about that because just going to church, you know, is not going to do that much. But it means that you're committed and it means that when you say something about religion, it's going to be listened to more. And when you make a recommendation about something that's really good about, uh, Bible classes or about an upcoming service or about reading the Bible or whatever it is, it has a greater impact. And our job is to learn how to make those, I call them gentle touches. Uh, biblically, it is saying come or giving an invite. And it is by John. All, most of the scriptures I'm going to be using, and, and there's a lot that I won't get time to use, but they would be from the Apostle John, who's writing to Ephesus, around Ephesus, and Ephesus is the third largest city in that New Testament world. Uh, the Rome is the largest. So it, it, the, the point is that John is dealing with the same issues that we're dealing with. He's the one that says, let him that heareth say come, at the end of the book of Revelation. He's the one that paints the pictures in John 1 of them saying, come and see. And 
the, the quality of a, of a gentle invitation. So when I say a gentle touch, you've got to touch their life with a religious value and drop it in, uh, give them a picture of, of where the benefits can be found. But that's the starter skill. Then you've got to learn how to give them a chance to check you out. That is, after uh, you invite people, invite them, you've got to learn when not to get discouraged. You've got to invite 100 people, and only five of those invitations will be accepted. And they'll bring somebody with them. So 10 people come walking in after you've gone to the effort. It takes a lot of effort to do 100 touches. And after you do that, uh, there will be uh, uh, six of them that will not come back. And that's true in every church in America. It doesn't mean you're not doing a good job. It's just they're not motivated that much. They're motivated enough for one look. Then, out of those other four, they all come back. And you will not know which one is the real prospect. So he comes back and he comes back. He's just sort of quiet. But he's checking you out. And you've got to know how to treat somebody that's peeking in at you. That's the first process. Peek. No commitment. Uh, not even to check out much. The second step is to check you out. That these peeked at you and found out you were not all that weird, you know. And so they, they, he comes to check you out. And that means you've got to build a relationship with him. You've got to remember him. You've got to, uh, uh, to do it without uh, uh, being threatening. And he's got to come back and come back and come back. And, but you've got to keep up upping the relationship just a little bit. Not enough to threaten him, but enough to show interest in him. And then after a relationship is built and he's checked you out, what goes on is the moral certification. Moral certification is he's got to watch you enough that he determines that you're genuine and that you really care and that you know something about the Bible and once he determines you're certified as genuine, now you have a conversation about religion, but it's not too pushy. And then the next time he may let you talk about a little bit more. And after you get a solid conversation about religion, you can suggest a study. But you don't suggest ten studies like I used to. Because that just blows him away. He can't conceive of that. You suggest, hey, why don't you bring your Bible and let's sit and read a few scriptures. You play it down. It's important to you, but if you make it all that terribly important to him, you lose your opportunity. And that's because he's urbanized. And he didn't know about people. He knows a lot about a lot of religious frauds. He knows about a lot of really pushy people. He's heard stories. And he's heard some things about you. And you, 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 you have overcome that through them checking you out, going through the moral certification period, and now your study comes easier. But you've had to work hard all the way through to get your study. We're going to stop at 15 till. Uh,
you uh, you put all that effort into it. When you get your study, they're a lot easier today. I just it, you can't go fast enough normally. You used to have to have all these lessons before. A lot of times we baptize now. Many of our recent baptisms were the first time they would really sit down and study with you. Because they've been coming and they've heard a lot uh, in their their observation. But uh, you, your baptism, but now you've got a person that didn't have all those ten hours of teaching that maybe someone years ago would have had. Uh, or 30 hours of teaching even. And so you've got to set in and have a really great foundations class or new convert class or a really great program for that next year. Because there are churches that lose 75% of their new converts. There are churches that keep 85% of them and only lose 15. We're still losing 25%. And we've still got some work to do there. But you can keep up to 85%. But it's a year-long program, very difficult to get your right teacher, put the right effort into it, understand how important all that background and development is. We'll talk about that as a process in uh, the next hour. I hope you were edified by this lesson. Most of all, I hope God was glorified. At the Franklin Church, we take God's directive to spread his gospel seriously, and we don't want to miss one single opportunity to get his word out. We hope you share this goal. If you have any questions about this lesson, any spiritual needs, or any prayer requests, please feel free to call us at 615-794-2359, or you may contact us through our website at franklinchurchofchrist.com. Also, if you're ever in the Middle Tennessee area, we would love to meet you face-to-face. We would love for you to attend one of our classes or assemblies. You can find directions and meeting times on our website. Again, that's franklinchurchofchrist.com. We look forward to meeting you. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.